Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we have a show for you that I think you're really going to enjoy. It features one of the leaders in public health throughout Indian country, someone by the name of Michael Bird. Michael has uh, had an illustrious career in the area of public health. He has been the past president of the American Public Health Association, and in that capacity was the first and only Native American who has led that prestigious public health group. Michael has uh, deep roots in Indian country, and I am so thankful to be able to introduce him again to you listeners on today's show. Michael, it is so good to have you with us. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. It's good to see you again, David. Michael, in addition to being a leader in the public health arena, having headed up the American Public Health Association as its president for a a term, you've done so much in public health, and you, like I mentioned earlier, have deep roots in Indian country. Tell us a little bit about your background and some of your journey that has made a difference for so many people. Well, thank you again, David, for this opportunity. I guess if you work hard enough at something, you know, hopefully something good happens. And I have been blessed both personally and professionally in that regard. But to your question, I'm Michael Bird, and I'm from Kiwa Pueblo in New Mexico. I think um, most notably, I think that I'll just start out by saying I think the, the two challenges that I've clearly aware of and recognize but first of all, I come I come from a family that had that historically has been challenged in terms of um, substance abuse. My father and significant others have suffered from that that challenge, and it is. Um, I, I think if I was to now now that CDC has got a name for it and and sort of which is important. Uh, in terms of my ACEs score, I think I think uh, I wouldn't be at the top of the r- ranking, but I would be somewhere in there. And I think that um, that's been a lifelong challenge in terms of what the impact it had on our immediate family and family of origin. But also, I've, I'd have to say the other significant challenge has has been racism. Um, mm. It is a reality. It is. It's been part of my lived experience, and I know it's part of Indigenous peoples' lived experience. But I think that that more importantly, uh, you know, I've been blessed with. I've had many blessings as well as challenges, and uh, one I'll share with you now that I'm happy, really happy to share with you is my mother uh, was born the same day as Elvis. That's this month, and she just turned eighty nine. Wonderful. Yes. And if if there ever was someone who was extremely significant in my life, uh, it's it's been my mother. And um, 
because she's always been there um, in terms of to offer guidance, love, and support, which is something that's essential to anyone, to all of, for all of us. Mm-hmm. But particularly for those of us, I think, who, um, and you know, and, and she grew up in challenging circumstances, but for any of us, that that's extremely important. And any good that has happened to me, anything that I've accomplished, anything I've achieved, really, um, I owe it to her and uh, and my grandparents and um, other individuals along the way who've been supportive, encouraging, and um, help facilitate. They open doors. Some people close doors, <laughs> but I've been but I've been lucky. I've had a lot of people who opened doors, created opportunity for me, and uh, and I owe them a debt of gratitude as well. Michael, thank you so much for uh, just sharing those tributes to people who've made a difference in your life. And you did mention those aces, those adverse childhood experiences. We hear so much about uh, just how powerful those are, those traumatic things that happened to us in childhood. And yet I appreciate individuals like yourself uh, acknowledging that you had those difficulties growing up, but instead of letting those things define you, you have uh, really overcome them. So that's always exciting for us. We've featured a number of individuals with Similar life stories, having grown up in uh, Indian country and in other environments who've uh, been challenged early in life and haven't let that define them. Having said that, um, after going through those challenges and coming into adulthood, you've made a big difference in public health in a number of ways. Many people have rubbed shoulders with you in your many leadership positions over the years. But I'm surprised I still run into people who've never heard of Michael Bird. And uh, we really want to get to know you a little bit better before we tap into some of your insights today. So tell us a little bit about your background in public health and how that has shaped your insights into so many things that impact indigenous communities. Well, I, I'll have to say I, you know, I have a bachelor's degree in anthropology from the University of Utah. My first master's was in social work from the University of Utah, and then a master's in public health uh, from Berkeley. With one of the important aspects of that education at Berkeley was a semester at the University of Hawaii and an introduction to the Native Hawaiian community. But I attempted to be a bureaucrat uh, with the Indian Health Service, and uh, I failed, which was the best thing that actually could have happened to me. 20 years in the Indian Health Service, it was in the trenches doing medical social work for four years, and then as an administrator at the area office in Albuquerque. And um, it really was not, it, it wasn't a good fit for me. Uh, I applaud those people who, who stay in those systems. They, they are colonial systems, but we have to understand that, first of all, um, kind of created to Bureau of Indian Affairs and Indian Healthers to manage sort of the Indian issue with inadequate resources as the cases with the Indian Healthers where it's like 40 to 50% of the level of need. Uh, but I had an option. I had a, when I bailed on IHS in 2001, the year I was to serve my 
term as president of the American Public Health Association, there really was no there, were, uh, there was no incentive to stay in IHS, and mm. uh, it and uh, APHA was a leap of faith, but it was the best thing that I could have ever done um, because it's opened my it's opened me up to so many so many doors opened, and um, I've had the opportunity to do things I never would have done. I've had experience and opportunities to learn things I never would have learned to create a not only a national but an international network of colleagues and friends. Um, I um, was the executive director of the National Native American AIDS Prevention Center in Oakland for about four or five years in Oakland, California, which introduced me to the whole arena of HIV and AIDS prevention programs. I, interestingly enough, was the first American Indian uh, to serve on the National Policy Council of AARP. Hmm. Point in time, there was a National Policy Council, which was made up of AARP members across the country who were brought together to give guidance and input into AARP. Uh, there had never been a Native person uh, serve in that capacity. I was the first and only. I was sort of aspiring to serve on their national board. Unfortunately, AARP has never had a Native person on their national board. Wow. Which I think is something they need to, since if if you're talking about in the era we're in, about diversity and equity and social justice, um, in my experience, one of the first questions somebody, anyone, anywhere, public sector, private sector, needs to do is look around and ask themselves, who's not here? That's the mm. first question. Second question they have to ask is, why aren't they? And then the mm. third question is, what are we going to do about it? Um, my experience has been, if you're not invited, you just kind of got to invite yourself. <laughs> and sometimes it works out. And sometimes it doesn't, but um, it's not about me. It's about the fact that we as Native people need to have representation. We live in a mm -hmm. democratic society, a representative society. And uh, there are many communities that have been marginalized. But I think that yeah, I make the case that American Indian community, Native community, Indigenous communities um, have a, and, and I would also include Native Hawaiian communities, have been um, significantly marginalized and often left out of the conversations when decisions and policy is made and when decisions are made about resources and programming efforts in a variety of settings. And so I think part of, I think what I've done is just try and ensure that there is a, that we have representation and that there is a voice that we have the opportunity to speak to our needs. Um, and also to share some of our wisdom and our knowledge. I mean, we've been on this continent longer than any other population. We know a little bit about survival. We've survived just about everything you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to the challenges of global warming and global extinction, potentially. Um, I think there are lessons to be learned from Native communities in terms of the value systems, in terms of the philosophy, in terms of the belief systems about, you know, that every that balance is a critical 
critical aspect of all life, that we have to be respectful of all things, and that we have to recognize and acknowledge that it is the earth that gives us all life. Without clean air, clean land, clean water, there is no life. You can go to Mars and, uh, there, you know, some people want to. I'm quite content to stay here uh-huh. uh, as long as we start cleaning up our act and start cleaning up the air and the water and start really beginning to establish a more humane and human way of relating to each other and being respectful of ourselves, the earth, and our fellow human beings. I really appreciate uh, what you and so many throughout Indian country bring to the table when we talk about what some people would call environmental stewardship, if you like that term. And it's interesting to me as you talk with people who have different kind of philosophical perspectives, um, even spiritual perspectives, they'll, they'll put different spins on that. One of the things I'm interested that we do in today's program is maybe share with us a little bit uh, into maybe some indigenous ways of thinking about this whole topic of being stewards of the environment. Right now, we don't have a lot of time to develop that in this segment. We definitely want to come back to that. But before we step away, there's a lot of great resources out there that people can immediately access. I know, Michael, you've been involved with a lot of organizations. We've touched on some in this segment. But is there any place you like to point people if someone says, you know, I'm hearing a lot of Native wisdom, I'm uh, seems like you have a lot to contribute, those of you in the First Nations community, I don't know anything about that world. Is there a point of contact? Is there an answer to that question, or do you just say, come around the table and sit down with us and listen to us? First of all, there's more there's more visibility and attention being focused on Native communities. And there are a number of organizations out there that are evolving. So I, I think that that's, you know, that, that's a good start. But we, we still have a lot of work. I just would say, you know, let's have a conversation. Well, that's what we're going to continue to do here today, Michael. We've got to step away just for a couple of minutes. I'm speaking with Michael Bird. Dr. David DeRose here. We will be back with more right after these important messages. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. We are strong. We are resilient. And we will get through this together. But these are stressful times. And it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid. But there is hope. Reach out to someone. Connect with your friends. Stay in touch with your community. And know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. 
When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. Then I heard about the USDA's loan program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. It's for women and minorities who may be having trouble getting credit. Once I was approved, the USDA's Farm Service Agency helped me get the credit I needed. Now I don't have to sell, and I can pass the farm down to my kids the way Jim's dad passed it down to him. I know he'd like that. Contact your local USDA Service Center or visit www.fsa.usda.gov. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose and with Michael Bird. Michael, one of the past presidents of the American Public Health Association, Long uh, history in public health, making a difference, uh, especially embracing his native roots and giving insight from an indigenous perspective to many of the issues that have been facing our country in the public health arena. Michael, in the last segment, we were speaking some about the uh, the challenges that we're facing on planet Earth and this whole concept of stewardship of the environment. Some folks... Uh, uh, kind of disparage that whole idea that uh, the earth is resilient and, uh, uh, you know, we're here to, to kind of run the show. Others are more realistic and are saying, you know what, folks uh, with indigenous backgrounds, they often have insights into things that are overlooked. Tell us a little bit about a native perspective on the environment that, that might be of interest both to people with native roots and those who are maybe first-time listeners to the broadcast? Well, first of all, let me say, I know what I know, and there are things I don't know. So I want to qualify anything I say about uh, in certain arenas. But clearly part of indigenous or native philosophy and beliefs is is that, you know, the earth is our mother. And in many indigenous um, stories and creation stories, their own versions of creation stories, you know, we came out of the earth. Um, and I think, so there's a different, different value system, a different, a different mindset, a different way of looking at, uh, a different belief system. Yeah. Just a different belief system, how, how indigenous people look at nature, what is called nature by some, um, and recognizing that we have to value and respect 
that which gives us life, and our life, in fact, comes from the earth. And clear examples of that are, you know, the water that we drink that provides sustenance and life to us, the air that we breathe, um, and the land that provides the opportunity for us to plant and, and reap, you know, the benefits of the various crops that are available to us. And so I think it's a, it's a more respectful way of looking at what has been defined as nature. And it's not viewed as something to be exploited, something to not be respectful of. And I think there are different philosophies and ways of looking of how we define ourselves, how we define ourselves in relation to the earth and the planet. And there are other philosophies, I think, that, that are contrary to that, to, to the indigenous philosophy. And, and they're exploitive philosophies. You see that manifested in the exploitation of, of the land. You see that manifested in the exploitation of people. And I think we have two contrary sort of belief systems in operation and I think the indigenous philosophy is life-sustaining, life-giving, and and operates in a way that recognizes that as human beings, we are not the end-all, be-all, and we are not in charge. And we have to recognize that there are natural laws, natural boundaries. And when we we fail to recognize that, we have, we're upsetting the balance that is inherent in all things. Balance is critical to everything. And I think we are running a real risk in putting all humanity in peril. And many Indian philosophers, Indian writers, Indian poets, people who who come from traditions, indigenous traditions, are well aware of that. And uh, I think we need to, we just need to be more aware. I think it was Tommy Porter of Mohawk about 40 years ago in Utah came and said one day, you know, people will recognize that you can't eat a dollar, you can't drink mm. a dollar, that there are certain things that we place value on and what sustains life and what is, is it, does not support life. And it made a lot of sense then and it makes a lot of sense now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I so appreciate this. I appreciate the emphasis on balance. Uh, just the other day, I was giving a talk and speaking about balance in the nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system, parasympathetic, and you know how we need to rest and we need these nurturing things, digestion. But it's so interesting as you speak about that. A lot of as we look at nature, it's the same kind of dynamic, you know, activity with rest, restoration. I love that perspective. It's real. It's true. Michael, you uh, have uh, had an opportunity as we've rubbed shoulders both off air here and then a few months ago when we were talking informally to just kind of observe something that, that I've observed as well. And it does seem like there's a growing appreciation outside of Indian country of what Native Americans bring to the table. As I deal in public health circles, it seems like uh, you know, across the board, whether 
I'm dealing with someone at CDC, you know, they have a native background, or this individual in a leadership position in a secular university, they're of indigenous roots. Is this just a perception because I'm more kind of in tune with that community, or are you really seeing a growing influence of those with uh, First Nations backgrounds as far as just the whole dialogue in society, as far as academia, as far as the press? How do you see that from your vantage point? Well, I think there's more visibility and more attention that's being paid to indigenous thought, philosophy, and beliefs. I mean, for one example, I mean, we, we find in the, in the history of this nation, we finally have an indigenous woman serving in a cabinet position with a presidential administration. I mean, it's sort of like, well, what took so long is my mm. thought, but... But it is happening, and and because of that, it has raised the bar, and I think created greater awareness that, you know, I mean, I think there was a survey done, I don't know if it was Kellogg or some national foundation, that was like 40% of the people in this country, or some outrageous number, didn't realize that there are still Native people. So when you've got that many people who believe that we no longer exist. The good news is we've got more attention and more more acknowledgement. But when you've got that that large a number of people in this nation who's, who don't even realize that there are still Native people, how are they ever going to ever even have a handle on the history of, of Native people, what has happened historically? And that there is an opportunity and that Native people have value to any conversation, but clearly in public health and mm -hmm. clearly in a number of arenas, Native people can bring value to those conversations. Uh, so I think there's more attention. On the other hand, I will say, given 30 or 40 years now, personally and professionally, there are still arenas, there are still academic environments. There's still people in nonprofits. There's still people in, in a number of arenas who still, you know, haven't gotten to the point where they really are as open or as welcoming in spite of all the rhetoric of diversity, equity, and social justice. Many of them are still not there. And in many cases, you see other communities of color represented and you still do not see Native people. Mm. In my opinion, you cannot begin to have a conversation about equity, diversity, or social justice if there's not an Indigenous representation and the opportunity for Indigenous people to have a voice. And it's not just because you're doing the right thing. It's because they, if they're fortunate enough, they can bring another way of looking at things, another value, another perspective, another lens to looking at some of the challenges and issues that other communities, you know, all communities have value, but other communities may not have because they are not indigenous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, these are great points, and we definitely want to build on a lot of the things that you've been sharing, uh, Michael. I know you've got a lot of uh, excellent insights, things that we want to draw from. 
because this whole environment that we find ourselves in, I'm not just speaking the built environment, I'm not just speaking of things that humankind has brought into, in this case, North America, but as we talk about people, as we talk about working together, as we talk about moving forward, uh, I have so appreciated just uh, some of the insights of Native Americans. I love some of the stories. Maybe we'll touch on this in, in some of the future episodes of people in tribal communities who've said, well, there are these researchers coming in that wanted to study this aspect or that aspect of the environment. And, you know, we tried to tell them X, Y, or Z, and they did all these experiments and found out what we knew all along. So, <laughs> you know, some of those are just classic. But we definitely enjoy the privilege of having you on the show. I'm glad you're sticking by. We do have to step away just briefly. Michael Bird. He's going to be with us for the duration of today's show. We do have to step away just for a couple of minutes. We'll be back with more right after this. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now, passers-by are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then, start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org. Unlike other health concerns, mental illness is not always easy to see. Depression won't show up on an eye chart, and you can't measure it on your bathroom scale. Sorting out a mental health concern is not something to attempt on your own. You won't find a bipolar disorder by looking at a thermometer. Like many other health conditions, help for mental illness takes professional diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety won't just go away under a stick-on bandage. So the sooner you seek treatment, the better. If you or a loved one has a mental health concern, don't go it alone. Find out what to do. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral, call 1-800-662-HELP. Learn more at samhsa.gov support. That's S-A-M-H-S-A dot gov slash support. Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know. I'm Jan, and I'm free from meth. If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov slash meth. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. 
We're in the second half of today's show. We're interviewing Michael Bird. Michael has got a background in social work. He is uh, a past president of the American Public Health Association. And we're speaking about indigenous insights, uh, some of the disparities that exist uh, in our country and throughout the world. Michael, you and I have had a chance to talk off air about something that I think a lot of our listeners would find fascinating, and that is some of your early history with Indian Health Service, uh, first uh, trained as a a social worker. Tell us a little bit about how that all came together and and how that led you into really giving back to your own people there locally. Well, I mentioned earlier, I have a master's in social work from the University of Utah, and then a master, and I went on later after that, my first career start, which was with the Indian Health Service in Santa Fe, New Mexico, with the the public health service hospital there, which I did for four years. I think the origin of my interest in social work came, goes back to my family of origin and that the challenges our my face sort of led me to feel and believe that I could maybe offer something to other individuals who are experiencing, you know, the same issues in their family or, or similar issues. So that led me to study social work and again began my career in the Santa Fe Indian Hospital and I'd have to say I think that those those four years in a sense in the trenches um, with my in my home community and the Santa Fe service unit at that time served 12 tribes um, and anything that came in the doors of a small hospital um, we dealt with and and you name it and we saw it and I was often a part of it. Um, and so that really grounded me in in the nature and extent of issues that Native communities were facing. And, and, and you know, it's typical of a small hospital, but again, it was at that point in time, you know, substance abuse and, and all, and all of the issues that, that are related to that. I was good at it. But I got to a point at which it was nothing was it it was like a revolving door, mm-hmm. and there was always another patient there was always somebody else coming into the queue and um i I was getting to the point where I was burning out, and I recognized that, and then I just kind of through being aware of and communication and conversations with some other native people who were in public health recognized that there had to be a there had to be some a better way of addressing the issues of Native communities. And that led me to an interest in public health and to prevention and looking at the the factors, those structures, social determinants of health, structural determinants of health, um, racial determinants of health. Those things have impacted Native communities that are unique to Native communities in some ways. And that led me to an interest in public health. And then I went back to school and was at, and did a master's in public health at Berkeley and subsequently a, a semester at the University of Hawaii and had the wonderful opportunity to engage with the Native Hawaiian community mm-hmm. and also gain a better understanding. I, mean, I studied under Dr. Hanani K. Trask. Uh, there was a course at that time that was a Native Hawaiian's and Native American contrasting and comparing their experiences. So mm. it gave me a real sound, a, a manner, a way, of a lens 
to look at what happened to Native Hawaiians, what was similar, what was different, what happened to American Indians, what was similar and different. And I think that really enhanced my vision and um, recognized that, that many of the issues that Native Hawaiians were experiencing are very similar to American Indian communities and tribes. Mm -hmm. I heard uh, as a result of your experience in Santa Fe there years ago that you were inspired to produce a video. Uh, I've not seen that video. Perhaps uh, we can maybe release it as part of some bonus content that goes along with the show. But tell us a little bit about that and, and what was behind it. Well, one of the things that oh, there was the experience in the trenches in Santa Fe was one part of it. But I got invited to a conference, I think, the first year I was in Santa Fe. And it was my first real job is actually making money as opposed to ramen noodles. Um, and people know that's kind of that story. So I went to a conference in, in Phoenix. There was a non-native uh, researcher who was presenting. He talked about, uh, started out with saying, well, Native Americans have a high rate of substance abuse. Native Americans have a high suicide rate. Native Americans have high homicide rates. And he went all, he, his presentation dealt with all the negatives and which was not unusual at that, at that point in time or mm -hmm. some cases still may exist. But so at the end of his presentation, I raised my hand and said, I just have to comment. I said, I'm Michael Bird. I'm from Santa Fe Indian Hospital. I said, I said, I got up this morning. I felt really good. I said, <laughs> but I feel like I need a drink. I feel uh, suicidal, but I'd never hurt anybody. I, I'm not homicidal, uh, and uh, thank you very much. And in response to that sort of mentality of that time, I said, I know we are we are more than the sum of our disparities. Mm. And I'm also very interested in history. And so Peter Nabokov's book on Indian running and a whole host of, I did some research, I developed paper, got, got it was published. And then I went, a step further and develop this this video titled In Windrunner, which documents the history of indigenous running in Americas, which talks about the role of culture and tradition and how positive behaviors running. We have some we've had some of the greatest runners in the in the world. Um, mm -hmm. you know, everyone, Louis Tawanama, Hopi Indian who ran the Olympics. We have, of course, Jim Thorpe, who ever, the mm -hmm. greatest athlete in the history of the world, won the pentathlon and the decathlon. And, and there's a whole history of these positive traditional cultural practices that have brought value, sustained us culturally, traditionally, and, and even to this day. And my message was people need to know about this because the only thing we're being told is that we're this disparate, downtrodden community and population when if you really go back to the historical record, there's a whole record of pre-contact and, and, and when the first people who Europeans came to this country, they described us across the board universally as healthy, vibrant people. And in over a span of time, that whole that whole narrative changed and defined us in, in some extremely negative mm -hmm. way. And those were the messages 
that for better or worse, more often worse, that we were being defined as this people who were just so challenged and so helpless and so and failing to recognize who we really are, what we really are within the context of, of history and the context of time, because we have always been strong, brave people. I love this picture, and it reminds me years ago, I, I heard a Native presenter uh, actually at a conference sharing actually the work of Jacques Lemoyne, one of the you know early Europeans who came to what would be what Florida today, and I mean countercultural. You know he, you know some people say well he romanticized the uh, American Indian, but he came with these same biases, uh, the savages, and, and instead he's writing about you know how noble they were, how majestic their health, and it's really like you said, Michael. It's just quite a uh, a telling testimony about the historical roots of indigenous people here on this continent. Absolutely. And most people in this country have no idea of the true story. Mm. Most people ha don't have a clue. And and the thing that really has been part of, significantly important to me, is really my research, my understanding, my seeking knowledge as to not only who we are today, but what we were in the past, and which then creates the potential to, for a new narrative of who we can be in the future. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing the Windrunner. That's the name of the video, right? Windrunner. Good. And we'll try to connect uh, our listeners with that if they'd like to tap into it. So Michael, kind of building on all this, uh, you know, we've been talking about the importance of dialogue, uh, indigenous people, non-indigenous people, you know tapping into uh, that wisdom base that has existed here on this continent in particular. I mean, because we're speaking in North America, you and I are doing this interview from uh, North American locations. But um, we've also been talking about this uh, giving value. You know, the context of, of history is often spoken of in Indian country, you know, and rightly so, historical trauma and you know, the negatives, the, the aces, the, you know, those adverse childhood experiences. But I so appreciate you wanting to shine a light on some of the positive historical roots that people can also tap into. They don't have to sit in that lecture and walk out feeling depressed and suicidal. They can say, you know, here's something that I can be proud of, that I can build on. I have this positive cultural heritage. So am I hearing you right? This is been something that's kind of been a driving force, at least in some of your work over the years? Well, I, I think we've been sold a negative narrative, a, a, a narrative that really has diminished who we are and what we are, and it's been inaccurate to begin with. It's inaccurate. And so I think, you know, we're at a point in time now where we're really creating our own narrative, telling our own story in our own voice. And that's the most critical thing. I mean, there's a host of poets and writers and filmmakers, and and they're telling the story. They're telling our story, not John Wayne and chasing some Indians across the plains or, or some other, you know, false narrative. And we deserve some time. We deserve our, it is our time to tell our story. And we not only 
can we benefit, but this nation and the global community can benefit. One of the things that I've been especially interested in lately, and folks who are regular listeners to the show realize we've been speaking a lot about a real challenge that is not a First Nations challenge per se. I mean, it affects people throughout Indian country, but it's a global challenge, especially in what we would define as the Western world, and that is obesity and overweight. And so we've been talking about a number of things that can help in that arena. It seems like there is so much in the way of Native wisdom that has a bearing on this topic that's getting a lot of attention today. People spending thousands, millions of dollars, uh, billions across the board on things to try to help in this arena. And uh, I know this isn't necessarily a special interest of yours, at least not that I'm aware of. I am hoping that we can touch on this at least a little bit when we come back uh, for our final segment. Uh, Is that uh, fair ground to tread on, Michael? I'm willing to go anywhere. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Well, with that uh, opening, we're going to step away just briefly. Michael Bird is my guest. We've got a final segment together. I encourage you to stay by. We're going to be looking at some things that have a bearing on your optimum health in our final segment. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Stay tuned. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov slash plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov slash plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm just texting him back. I'm just posting a story. I'm just changing the song. I'm just... No. When it comes to distracted driving, just don't. Sending a text takes your eyes off the road for just five seconds, but in that time, your car can travel the length of an entire football field. Any distracted driving just isn't worth it. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What is a number story? My number story started with fear and a lack of support, and it has led me to be there for others. A number story begins in our childhood with ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. My number story begins with the separation from my father and the emotional abandonment from my mother and leads to me being a role model to not only myself, but those around me by becoming the person that wasn't there for me. ACEs are so common, two-thirds of us have one. My number story begins with drug abuse and homelessness and leads to realizing that I can live life by my own standards. A study found the more ACEs, the more likely we may experience a host of serious health effects, physical and mental, but that doesn't need to be the case. Your ACE number is simply an entry point to your own story. Where it leads is up to you. My number story begins with years of emotional abuse and leads to peace, clarity and security in my self-worth. Take control of where your number story leads at numberstory.org. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. 
Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to the final segment of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose with Michael Bird. Michael's been sharing with us uh, from really his wealth of experience uh, growing up in Indian country, giving back to Indian country, leading in the public health community, trying to uh, bring uh, diversity more to the table in places where it was not uh, given a place at the table. Michael, one of the things we were speaking about as we transitioned into our break was this whole topic of dealing with excess weight. We had mentioned earlier in the show that this was not a characteristic of First Nation peoples historically. That's not what the records uh, from European initial European contact indicate. And uh, yet Native Americans, like uh, the majority population, many do struggle with weight-related issues. It seems, though, from my limited experience in Indian country, that there's a lot of cultural wisdom that has a bearing on this topic. And uh, I know you're not an expert in this, but you have deep roots. You rub shoulders with a lot of people. Help us. Uh, there's folks listening in that say, hey, what can I do? What can I learn from First Nation peoples that can help me trim down a little bit? Well, first, I, again, I have to give it some historical context. When you take a popular, I mean, I think the, the historical record makes pretty clear that Native people were healthy. You know, when you, you live a, a subsistence sort of lifestyle in terms of some many, many tribes farmed, you know, there's the Siri sisters um, that's referenced and many, many tribal populations grew crops and and had um, that as part of their diet. And then they would supplement it with hunting. You know, I think probably here in New Mexico, rabbit, uh, deer and some other protein in, in that arena. And of course, you know, other tribes had a variety of depending on the environment they were in. But I think one of the things that needs to be said is that with contact, everything, the natural world that indigenous people had was disrupted and everything was altered. And one of the things that impacted all of that was reservation systems and people no longer having the opportunity to have access to those traditional crops and to be able to hunt and engage in those activities. And there's a whole history and Native people have made made it humorous nowadays because you have to do something sometimes with a bad situation to make it better, talking about commodities and influx of commodities into Native communities, which were all Department of Agricultural Surplus Foods, which were all, <laughs> you want to talk about a healthy diet? Uh, well, you're not going to get that from the Department of Agriculture if you're getting commodities. And as someone who was one of those people who had <laughs> some experience with commodities, uh, and for those younger Indian people who didn't grow up in that area, they some of them missed out on spam and uh, commodity cheese and other food that oftentimes was really not that healthy. And then we you throw Native people into the midst of fast food and and everything's fast and we're going to, you know, you're just trying to get by. Not to say that there are not, there are still Native people who, you know, are really committed, you know, they're active, they farm, they work, they still have gardens, they're still, you know, engaged in that. But we, along with everybody else, have been sucked into this fast food arena 
where the easiest way to get something is a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken, go through a quick drive-in. It's cheap. It's easy. It's not healthy. And you see that across the board with communities that are you know, oftentimes are poor and marginalized, um, not just not just in reservation communities, but in inner cities and and <laughs> and across the suburbs of this country. What I do see is is clearly a more acknowledgement and a growing awareness and acknowledgement and a new narrative and practices that are promoting the health and healthy cooking, healthy food. And that, I mean, and even James Beard winners, uh, chefs uh, in terms of Minneapolis, there's a James Beard, I can't remember the name of the restaurant or the chef, but we've a growing array of culinary expertise. The Indian Pueblo Cultural Center here in New Mexico has had some great native chefs, great food. And so it's it's really a mixed bag. And if you're really going to look at it, you really have to, I think, look at it historically from a historical perspective and really drill down to look at, okay, what was pre-contact, what happened after contact, and where are we at now? So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but here's what I hear you saying between the lines, Michael. I hear you saying, if we want to connect with indigenous wisdom when it relates to optimal metabolism, optimal weight, we're going to get closer to the land. We're going to be thinking about, if not growing our own food, maybe eating more of those whole plant foods. If we're looking at... uh, animal sources of protein, it's going to be stuff that we hunted, not stuff that we went through the drive-through for. Am I summarizing that correctly? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I love those points. Michael, our time is slipping away from us, and I know we could have spent hours together talking about things that would make a difference for people who are tuning into this program. But if we're to circle back around to your original roots in health, medical social worker at a uh, Indian Health Center hospital. Bring us back to that and, and maybe some messaging that you'd like to give to people throughout Indian country about prevention. Now that you've gone that full circle, you've been in uh, the public health arena, what kind of messages would you like First Nation peoples to hear today about things that can make a difference in their own situation? Well, actually, David, uh, I just in December, I turned 71, so I'm fighting back against that high mortality rate that impacts our Native community, and I'm not full circle. At some point, I will get full circle, but God <laughs> God, God, give me strength and somebody bless me. Uh, I'd, I'd like to, before I complete the circle, there's some, definitely some things I still want to get done that hopefully make a difference for all our communities. All I've ever wanted to do was make a contribution to make things better. And I think the the message I would leave with you, you know, when I I spent a lot of time in the academic environment seeking knowledge and seeking credentials and those are important and I value that and I clearly support anyone who is in that arena. But the one thing I'd say that I've learned in and I've, and I've actually written a piece on this in the back in 2002 after I was president of APHA. I I think the one thing I would say is that I respect, appreciate, and I still want to gain knowledge. But more important, more important, I'm seeking wisdom. Hmm. Because wisdom, in my opinion, is a far rare quality. I've known people who've had a lot of credentials, 
positions and knowledge, but uh, but in the arena of wisdom, it wasn't there. Because wisdom opens you up to everything. So for someone who's scratching their head and they're saying, okay, knowledge, wisdom, what's the difference? How do you define wisdom that differentiates it from knowledge? Well, knowledge can be gained in a variety of ways. And in this society, we tend to look at it as academic credentials. And they're important, but it's limited. Wisdom comes from all teachings, comes from all people. And I think it's, it requires one to kind of step back, to slow down, and to really ask oneself, what is, what is really important? What's important in life? So would you be one that, as you speak about that difference, you know, knowledge, some people define it in terms of facts, information, whereas wisdom, application, and the bigger picture, is that kind of the nuances that you'd be emphasizing as well? Right. And it can come from any place. And it mm -hmm. comes from our day-to-day -day interactions. Some of the wisest people I've ever met didn't have any credentials. Uh-huh. But you had to be willing to acknowledge who they were, what they were, and what they know. And some of us, we dismiss people sometimes because, you know, we make assumptions about each other in our day-to-day -day lives. Well, this, this has value. That doesn't. This person had, can do something for me. That person can't do anything for me. Michael, it's a fitting note to close the show on. Uh, just reminding us, because so many people that tune into the show they're not native, and uh, some may be listening for the first time or they've listened a few times, and uh, they may not have in their minds the highest value for people with the indigenous roots uh, on these lands. But um, you've reminded us that there's a lot of, of wisdom out there in Indian country, but in everyone. People yes. have a story we can tap in. When we listen to each other, when we look at our own experience, we can grow from that. Uh, your story to me is always an inspiration. I remember uh, being there as you were inaugurated uh, as president some 20 years ago, APHA. And uh, it's just great to have you uh, back on the show, sharing your wisdom with us. So thanks so very much, Michael. Thank you for the opportunity. And thanks again. Appreciate it. And thanks to each one of you who've tuned in today to this episode of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. As always, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.